I'm Ben. I'm Tim. And I'm Jim, and this is Topic Lords, the only place on the internet you can hear topics discussed. Ben, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? Yeah, I'm a game developer based in the UK. I don't have anything to plug, because that's sort of my, my deal these days, is just sort of... Do you have anything to unplug? <laughs> that's a question. No, I wish I had something to tell people to not look at. Uh, if people want to find me on the internet... Um... And that happens later. You, you answer that question later. Oh... Okay, okay, okay. That's yeah, that's true. I, I read ahead on the show notes. <laughs> Nothing to plug. Okay. Uh Tim, would you like to introduce yourself or do you have anything to plug? Yeah, I, I'm Tim and I am also a game developer. I'm currently at Giant Squid Studios, working on a new project. Um and uh nothing really to plug. Um I, I you know, I, I have a new baby. Uh so that's my greatest accomplishment right now. That's 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 what I'm plugging. That's a lot of kids. How are you gonna how are you gonna handle it? Third, third kid. You ask that like I have an answer. Um, <laughs> it just happens to you. Congratulations. I don't know. We keep breathing. Keep watching our children. I don't know. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. It just happened. Very, very exciting. Congrats. Yeah. Congratulations. Are we ready to start on some topics? Yes, please. Tim, your topic is my Thursday night. Yeah. So I just I just wanted to share my Thursday night, which is, of course, yesterday. Not that people hearing this, that will, that will not probably line up with reality. But I had a very interesting night last night, which is sort of surreal. My birthday is coming up. So my younger brother was like, hey, the mountain goats are coming to Philly. Do you want to go watch the mountain goats live, do a show? And I haven't done a show since the pandemic, uh, much less one inside. So I was like, sure, I'll have a baby born <laughs> sometime around that week. Let's do this. Uh, and so, so we set that up. Uh, they came which was yesterday for the show. And I, I got uh, in an Uber that he, he set up for me and drove in. And uh, I, I want to lay a little groundwork here. I recently started taking uh, medication for sleep, which um, I was warned does not interact well with grapefruit or alcohol. Oh, yeah. Well, nothing interacts well with grapefruit. I want you, I want you to remember this detail because it is relevant to the story. <laughs> so cut to I'm in Philly. We're at the venue, and we go over to this restaurant next door where my brother got a reservation. So, so first of all, we sit down, and behind us, in the table right next to us, is the Mountain Goats, also having dinner at the exact same restaurant right next to us. So that was exciting. And then my brother, who lives in Maine, showed up out of nowhere and just dropped in and sat down, and he had apparently come down to surprise me for, for uh, my birthday. So that was pretty exciting. And then they're like, shall we order drinks? <clears throat> and so they order drinks, and, and I have ordered for me. Uh, a cocktail, which I didn't read what was on it. It's a grapefruit cocktail. <laughs> and comes with a shot of tequila. So so I have that, and we go to the show. And and the show's great. But I start to feel really weird during the show. Like, sort of sleepy and like I'm floating. And so uh, I've, I've, I've since <laughs> looked up the medication, and you're really not supposed to do that. Um, but it yeah. was a very transporting show, because I felt... Um, for lack of a better term, high during the show, thanks to the various chemicals in my body. And um, and uh, I had my brothers there. The whole thing was so surreal. And I'll say, I think the most surreal part of it actually was that I have been for the last month caring for a newborn, going to work, caring for a newborn, not sleeping. And then all of a sudden I'm like having a nice meal, going to a show, just having this, this great relaxing night. So anyway, it was awesome. That was the dream part that you... The the side effect of the drug was that you fell asleep. You spent the whole day asleep. Exactly. And, and you dreamt that you had a nice night. And uh, and then uh, uh, went on with my normal life, which I have now resumed. 
uh, as evidenced by this call, which I guess is my third time here. Something like that. Who's counting? I was going to say that I thought that the story was going to turn into a... And then I woke up and somebody was like, come on, you're late for the mangoes. And you have to <laughs> do that part of the day again. And just do that again and again and again. So do you, is it the good stuff? Your, it, your, what the good your, stuff? Your sleep drugs. Not usually. It just makes you feel kind of sleepy. And it's complicated because like, <laughs> okay. how sleepy am I? How delirious am I? Well, let's put this in context. In addition to that drug, I'm also told not to take uh, caffeine. So now I'm in caffeine deprivation. So I'm a little sleepy. And I have a baby keeping me up. So I'm a little sleepy. And my daughter had a fever. So I'm really sleepy. So you, you add all these factors in. And it was just a sort of a mind-bending journey for Who can me. tell what is doing what at that point? No, yeah. I have no idea. Yeah. I have no idea. I don't think it can be known. I think the, the complexity of that cocktail of factors just like stuff yeah. happened. And I was transported. You're not supposed to have grapefruit when your daughter has a fever. There's all sorts of bio-interactions there. It's well documented. Yeah. <laughs> Tim, was, was cocktail a factor the name of the cocktail you got on, the, on Thursday night? Was, was cocktail the name of it? Cocktail of factors, you just said. Oh, no. <laughs> but it should be. I should recommend it. No, it was, it was a good time, though. It was fun. And my, Mike, my older brother, uh, just, just, just appeared out of nowhere. And that was really exciting. I almost invited him uh, uh, to come join us, Jim. Just drop in. Oh, yeah. He's been on the show before. I keep expecting one of these days you two are going to be on the show together. I'm not sure if that's ever going to happen. Could have happened today. Could have happened. The other way I thought this story might have gone is um, when you mentioned, uh, oh, we had a nice dinner, and then uh, just the mangoes were there also. And I thought it was going <laughs> to turn into, like, John Daniel turns to you and says, this is an intervention, and then all of your loved ones are there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we've heard that you have a problem. That's a good Thursday. It was a good Thursday. I don't think I'm going to have a better one for a while. Not with that attitude. <laughs> you got to go out like this every Thursday. Got to make yeah. it make it a it's, a it's a rule now. <laughs> Are we ready for another topic? Yeah. Ben, your topic is the daunting thought of there is so much music that exists now. It's more than likely your favorite song in the world is out there and you'll never find it in your lifetime. Yeah, just to kick off with a bummer. Or maybe not bummer, depending on your outlook, but I uh I like uh, discovering music. It's like one of my hobbies. And I often think some of the most exciting moments in like just being a fan of music is when you just find something in the middle of just, just from nowhere. It's just, you know, in the in the depth of YouTube recommendations at three in the morning and you would never have searched for the thing. Or lying down the back of the proverbial sofa, you just find just an amazing new artist who you're just obsessed with for the next two months or whatever, and that leads you down a rabbit hole of, of amazing music you didn't know you, you liked. And that often makes me think, like, what are the what are the leads that I didn't follow because I just, you know, there's so much material out there that you just can't chase everything. Yeah. I try not to think about it for too long because it's a little bit, um, you know, gets you a little bit bummed out, but... If I had infinite time and didn't have a job and didn't have obligations, um, it would be nice to just follow the, follow those rabbit holes, you know? Yeah, I, uh, hearing that is interesting. I, uh, I actually don't meet a lot of people like you, but I am the same way. I, I have an ongoing sort of playlist, which is just music I encounter, and I, I just systematically add it. Anytime I hear a song that's interesting from any place, uh, in a cafe, I'll hear a song, I'll ask them what it is, write it down. Uh, I'll, I'll uh, be at a show... And there'll be an opening act that was cool. I'll write down a song I like for a minute to accumulate. There's all these ways that you find this stuff. Um, sometimes I'll be like 
watching some little video on YouTube. I'll hear a music in the background. I'll track down what it is. Trailer songs from movie trailers, mm-hmm. TV show trailers, like all kinds of cool ways to find this stuff. Ah, I mean, it's incredible. And, and not a lot of people are really interested in that as a uh, way to spend their time. But like, keep telling me like they can't listen to music while they work. But like, I always listen to music while I work. Like, I feel like I'm, that's often like almost a filter. If I notice the song Ooh, while I'm working, then I know that it has something for me. I feel like seeking out new music kind of happens. It, it, it comes naturally to people who are like under 30. And then after that, there's like a flip, the switch that flips where like, okay, if you want to keep finding new music and paying attention to it, and that's something you care about, now you need to start working at it. Okay, so that's a call out because I turned 30 like a year and a half ago or, oh. or two years ago now. Uh-huh. Uh, and so, yeah, I've very recently noticed this sort of switch. I've noticed the sort of rust form on my on my brain uh, <laughs> that makes just, you know, keeping up with things and discovering new things a little bit harder and a little bit more effort. Yeah. Is it 30? Is that 30 or is that COVID? Because like... Those are, <laughs> For those me, are it was about 30. In my case, it's, it's both, so... Yeah. There you go. For Bars. me, it was about 30. Like, I've got... Uh, really like almost encyclopedic knowledge of like pop music from like the 50s through the year 2000 and then after that almost nothing like i don't know interpol is like the last band you heard yeah saw the posters on your wall no my posters right now i have a poster which which has the source code of pitfall for the atari 2600 i love that that fits on a wall of course it does (laughs) like there's only so much information you can put on one of those cartridges that's right that's the source code that's the assembly it's a dis. It's a disassembly. It's a dis- disassembly of it. Okay. It's not like oh, I guess that is the same thing technically. It's six five two assembly. It's uh. It's not commented. So like it's it's definitely a disassembly. Yeah. So the thing I was gonna also say though is it's, it's interesting. Um, I'm curious what drives your interest in in hearing this new music and, and discovering it because there's an element of collection I think to these things sometimes that can mm-hmm. for me at least be um distracting from from the real purpose of it. Like when I'm trying to put a mix together of cool stuff I found, it starts to be like I'm hunting for something to have, or or um, or like why do I, why would I be sad to miss out on on a, on the music? Mm-hmm. Right? For me, it's it's less of a sort of collection thing and more of a purposeful sort of effort to not uh, stay young is the wrong way of putting it, but like just remain sort of open in my outlook to just like oh whatever new is happening or whatever new i'm exposed to and not just sort of living in the sort of uh 16 to 26 decade of the good days of when you know music is sort of most seminal seminal to most people yeah yeah so maybe it maybe it comes from that sort of spot there's a um a comic book by kieran gillen i think it's called phonograph um and it posits it, it's it it's kind of a um a reaction to magic systems in RPGs where your skills just grow over time and that's what happens to your abilities is they just increase with with your experience uh and it's much more in in this in this world your skills are analogous to like the energy you have as a person so as you get older your magic gets weaker yeah teenagers are the most powerful magicians <laughs> in the world and then in order to um maintain your abilities uh, later in life you have to sacrifice more and more other things in your life and so this is all this is all done with like a music metaphor of course it's really cool i would love also the idea of like it's not that you sacrifice things it's just the, the reality of our world is just like dumb luck basically <laughs> and so like the most powerful spell caster in that world would be somebody who 
got lucky and survived to 90 and kept all their skill and had all the wisdom, but also all the kind of youthful capacity. That would be. Yeah, they uh, they have auto brewery syndrome, but for, for methamphetamine. <laughs> like uh, Tom Brady. Just like <laughs> some people just, I don't know, don't age. Some people, yeah. Being yeah. more fit than everybody else forever. Yeah, I, uh, on, on the topic of, uh, of songs, uh, one of the reasons I also hunt for music, I think, is because um, I feel music very strongly. And I know that, that that's true for most people. But uh, for me, it's like um, addictive to, to feel really strong, powerful emotions. Uh, you know, stories are that way for me. Even just pitches or premises for things, they make me feel feel something strongly. Uh, then that's really powerful to me. I want more of that. Uh, there was actually a Mountain Goat song I brought up yesterday when I was talking with my brothers, which is from his, his I think, least popular album, probably. The uh, the Life uh, of the World to Come, which is like the, the one which where each song is inspired by a Bible verse. Because <laughs> he's apparently super Catholic. And uh, one of the songs, though, I, uh, really, really jumped out at me and really impressed me and I found super powerful, which was there's a song he wrote about the experience of watching his uh, his mother-in-law die from cancer. And uh, I have a friend who just died of cancer, from pancreatic cancer, like a month ago. And I knew this song forever. And it was powerful to me when I heard it, maybe five years ago, six years ago. And then in the wake of this life event, and of course pulling up uh, Mountain Ghost music again in the anticipation of the concert, I listened to it again, and it, it resonated so much with me. It was an incredibly powerful experience. So I think on some level... Whether or not it's conscious, one of the outcomes of, of kind of curating these collections of music is that I have things I can go back to and recontextualize when my life enters a place where these things resonate. Um, you know, a trite example would be like Cat Stevens' Father and Son when I had a kid. Stuff like that, where you know it's a good song and everybody likes it, but it changes when you change. Yeah. The, the thing that made this topic made me think of was actually the same thing, but for video games. Where like there are so many games on Steam that I feel like my favorite, everybody's favorite game is out there somewhere, and there's there's no way to find it because search is so terrible. <laughs> like if I go to Steam right now, it's like, hey, would you like to play Grand Theft Auto Five? Based on the games you play, we think you'll like Grand Theft Auto Five. It's gonna keep asking you until you play it, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, I I do think there's there's something to that about like the endless backlog. I have to admit that I have entered a stage in my life with stories that I, I don't think I've ever talked about with anybody, but like, I find myself afraid of stories now in a way that I'm not, for instance, for example, in music. Like, I know a number of stories that I would love, and I've been recommended by so many people. The, the premises are so good that the odds that I don't think it's one of the transformative stories of my life is low. Yeah, I, I feel kind of afraid to confront them, to like to to engage with them. Um, one I remember is uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, uh, which uh, I'm positive I would love, and I'm positive it's incredible. Uh, and I have a copy of it, and I haven't watched it because I am, I don't know, afraid of what it will make me feel. Oh, sure, yeah. So I've, I've been having that more and more. You know, I think everyone's had a little of that. It's starting to be where, like, that's almost my default emotion like someone has to drag me into a story and then i love it and i think it might not be like fear of your reaction but it might just be like i don't know this might just be a adhd thing but like i have trouble starting tasks and watching a movie is work uh yeah same that yeah (laughs) plug the word right out of my mouth same 
I feel like music is less. It's a little bit less friction with that because I mean, can, if nothing else, because because their songs are usually shorter. It's like short stories. Yeah, they're shorter, and you can be you can be you know using your the rest of your brain in other you know yeah. capacities and whatnot. Um, but I'm that way with, with films. I really have to be a captive audience, like on a flight or with friends, yeah. uh, to be watching a film. You gotta go uh, camping in the woods in order to watch a movie. Yeah. So I end up just rewatching stuff. Yeah, because you don't have to pay as much attention. Yeah. yeah. And and because I know I know what's coming a little bit. Like I don't like mm-hmm. spoilers for stuff because it robs me of that emotional impact. But then again, flip side, rewatching movies, yet I still have the impact. So I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about spoilers. Or am I just reliving am I reliving my own past experience in memory? And if I never had the initial powerful experience, then it, I can't experience the aftershocks of it on a review. I don't know. I'm I'm always surprised about people's various relationships with spoilers and how they respond. I had an ex's mom who uh, would watch like soap operas every night, but would go before it was like a soap opera that was on every weekday evening. But before it aired, she would go onto there was some forum or, or other where they would just post the scripts to that night's episode, and she would just read the script and just like know what was going to happen before. It happened, and that was just her preferred way of watching the show. Just like that, just maybe to, it works. Yeah, and and that's just okay. That's just the way that works for you, and that's how you interact with this show. I will definitely like if a movie is stressing me out too much, I'll go read the plot summary on Wikipedia so I know what's going to happen. So this reminds me of two things. One is um, the music culture in the United States uh, before the era of radio and uh, reproduction of, of uh, music was that the sheet music was a huge seller. People would buy sheet music for piano arrangements of orchestral music yeah. or quartet music, and they would they would buy it, then they would play it, they would practice it. They would have like book clubs where they talk about it, all in anticipation oh of my a famous orchestra coming through. Then they'd go watch it. And it was like, now we get to enjoy this with the real deal. And we still do that today, I think, uh, with plays and uh, also film adaptations of plays that oh, we're, sure. you can read the script but then you see the performance yeah you can you can get the hamilton soundtrack in anticipation of when it's going to show up in your town yeah and then you go see the real thing or honestly i mean you could make the extension of a cd versus a live performance yeah that you're you're getting this reproduction of it this this partial version and then you see the real one and just because you know what's coming doesn't mean that it is incredible to see it brought to life by by the actor. This also explains why people keep making the same video game over and over again with better graphics. I think that's actually probably true. I'm st- I'm still totally stuck on just this concept of sheet music as like pre-release hype document that's just <laughs> blowing my mind. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't a pre-release hype document. It was like the thing. I mean, it was also the thing, but just yeah, just people you know having book clubs and and sort of pouring over it and just. Yeah. yeah, getting excited about. I know. Yeah. Like, if you wanted music in your life, you had to play it or you had to know somebody. You're like, you know, you have to go to a bar where there's somebody playing a guitar, you know? It reminds me of, like, you, do you ever have the experience of, like, having a video game back when they came in boxes? I guess they still come in yeah. boxes. Oh, my God. Yes. And, like, you would, like, 
on the car ride home, you would be reading the manual yep, to like hype yep. yourself up for the experience of putting the disc in the Look at the box. <laughs> I mean, it was huge. It was absolutely yeah. um, a part of it. Actually, I was just reading an interview from the Mountain Goats, obviously, in, in keeping with the fact that I, you know, full Wikipedia dive fans before I go see them. Uh, and actually, with reference to that album I mentioned earlier, uh, The Life in the World to Come, they, uh, he did an interview about that album. And one of the things he mentioned was this idea of people... Uh, ripping off and leaking his albums before they came out, and how he felt so crestfallen when that when when, it, when an album would leak. And uh, the reason for that, uh, like leak digitally, was the reason for that was because he was envisioning the experience of the listener as being this full experience that he had as a kid that he was trying to recreate for the listener, where you get the disc and you're looking at it in the car on the way home while your parents drive you from the mall or from the store, Sam Goody or whatever the hell it was. And then you would pull out the liner notes and you'd be reading the lyrics, but again, getting this partial sense of it, maybe some little details, maybe a little explanation, maybe a little weird sketch or something. And then you listen to the music and it's this conscious listening experience where you're reading the words, you're hearing. So when it would leak digitally, for him, you're just getting the sound. Everything else was stripped away and he was so broken up about that but in, but in the interview he said that he kind of came to terms with the fact that that's just his experience that he was trying to offer but that he shouldn't be sad if someone else doesn't value that or doesn't want that but, yeah, but it I, definitely speaks to that the the conscious listening experience is one that is i remember having it as a kid and i've, I've also i feel like it used to be the norm so i i had just got the uh, the test pressing of the frog fraction soundtrack lp and, you know, I was, I have to listen to this thing so that I can make sure it's, it sounds good. So I, I had to find a friend who owns a turntable. Like I've actually got a turntable, but it's a bad one and I don't trust you it. You need to know how it sounds on a bad turntable as well. Well, I found out and it skips a lot. Uh, okay. <laughs> so it's a remix. Yeah. I went over to his house and we just sat and listened to this 45 minute LP and that's it. That we just listened to it together. And it was really cool. It was it was an experience that I haven't had in decades. It's a listen, listening party, isn't that the term people use for it nowadays? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then we tried putting on another record that was that wasn't the Frog Fractions LP, like because like we wanted to do it again, and that wasn't nearly as good. Uh, well, you picked the wrong album. I, I can I could name some good listening albums. Yeah, that might have been the problem. But in general, it seems that that's that's an experience I would like to have again. Uh, actually, unless either of you has more to say about this, I've got a segue into the next topic. Yeah. My topic is, I've been working on a small game in my spare time and I never want to ship it. I just want to have friends playtest forever. And this is because when you playtest, you are kind of getting a, w a window into your friend's mind in a very, like a, like a surprisingly intimate, intimate way where like you, you learn more about how they think and what they like. Uh, in, and all of this is under the auspices of like making your game better, which it is doing, but at the same time, you're also like getting to know your friend better. And it, it's very like, I, I also, I'm, I'm just really enjoying this experience of like, yeah, I'm going to hang out with this person for an hour or two and they're going to tell me everything they're thinking. Yeah. And even if, even if the game wasn't involved, that would be cool. Jim, are you using game development as a method of data gathering on your friends? Well, data gathering uh, is, is one way to put it. <laughs> That's all that life is. Okay, look, please. But, but, but actually, to that point, I, I was going to say, I think, I think you might just be on the cusp of a, of a, a breakthrough of, of like the meaning of life for you. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, replace this with, you know, I, I run a small podcast uh, and I don't really care if I get a lot of followers. 
I, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's very related. Yes. Yeah. Because like the, the ambition of reach, like you're essentially saying, I, I do this thing that, uh, is thought of as a productive activity Yeah. with, uh, with goals, implicit goals and win conditions and marks of, of success. And I am approaching it as a personal practice as opposed to, uh, whatever those sort of extrinsic, uh, factors are. And I think that that's just enlightenment, man. I think you've come to realize that there's something that is important to you in and of itself. I think that's fantastic. I think if anything, I'm not weird about that. I, I tend to agree, except that like true enlightenment would be just doing the things that are good for their own sake instead of having to like brain hack my way to doing the thing I want to do by like saying, oh, but I'm being productive. No, you're, you're making meaning out of your life. Like, do you need to be conscious of that, right? If you if you approach the things that are valuable to you through the lens of an illusion that you know is an illusion but still engages you, I don't know that that's uh, a problem. That might just be embracing your human element, right? Like, you are a human. You are motivated by these things. Yeah. They still give you value. Why not put it into human terms and enjoy them in that way? Yeah, I guess so. I think you're spot on with this. I wish I had realized earlier. That it's that kind of thing that, that is really what makes me happy. When I practice my music, I don't have shows. I've written all a bunch of songs and uh, performed and recorded them. They sit on my hard drive, and I'm very content with that. Um, and it took me a long time to realize that like that that can be the end. I yeah. can be the, the total the total experience is that. Yeah. I have two questions slash follow ups. Number one, getting a load of lockdown lockdown hobbies has done this to me, but I'm also super on the side of yes, just creating for sort of its own sake and also not even for the sake of like developing as a, as a skill slash getting good slash becoming um sort of master at it but just for the sake of enjoying the thing while you're doing it um yeah well ex except that like in like getting good is enjoyable yeah but also when that's sort of the like priority or the sort of overt goal you have in your head it's also a little bit of a blocker to just enjoying like making the mistakes and just doing the like bad version of the thing that you do before you get a little bit of proficiency mm -hmm. so i'm i'm trying to quiet the voice in my mind that is like oh you're gonna you know suck for so long and until you eventually get a i don't know and um that's a skill I think just yeah. To well, here's what you yourself. do: you start a YouTube series called "Ben Sucks at Baking," and then oh, great, <laughs> get... yeah, content, yeah. <laughs> you get a bunch of um, followers that are are they're going to be disappointed if you get good. Well remembered, by the way. It was baking is one of those one of one of the hobbies I've chosen. <laughs> um, it was an easy one though, because it's it's also like the default lockdown hobby. You could not buy yeast for ready money. In the first three months of the pandemic. That's true. Or flour. Flour. Yeah. They were just like, everybody's baking. <laughs> mm -hmm. God, there's there must have been like, you can dehydrate your beer to get yeast back out of it or something like that. I could have got natural, naturally occurring yeast from that. Yeah, just dig it up out of the ground. <laughs> no, you just literally leave, leave it out uh, and the yeast will land on it. That's how you do like lambic brewing. Wow, oh, that's actually incredible. Because... Yeah, yeah, they, they have just naturally occurring yeast. What's really cool about that, by the way, not to like spin up a, a rogue topic, but <laughs> the place where you make that kind of naturally fermented beer will taste completely different than other places because there are different naturally occurring yeasts in parts of the world. Yeah, that so makes sense. So if you did the same exact recipe but did it in Philadelphia or, you know, Canada or, you know, Sudan, you get an entirely different uh, product out of it. 
Like it would taste completely different, potentially, uh, which I think is just super cool. It's a very, it's like an implicitly regional uh, uh, product in a way that I feel like whiskey is. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a form of scarcity that is is itself scarce in our global world. Yeah, it's literal culture. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Um, my second uh, comment was going to be just that I want to hear more about this game at some point, <laughs> but that's <laughs> that's just my curiosity. Well, I was telling you about it at GDC, I think. I don't remember if fun. I named it at the time. Yeah, it was fun. It was a good time. We hung out, hung out on the lawn the whole time. I forget if I named it at the time, but it's called Gordy and the Monster Moon, and it's about I love a, that. A, it's about pump, a pumpkin going on adventures. Yes, this is ringing bells now. Sorry, that week is just sort of a, a blur in my head. But I, I do remember talking to you for a considerable amount of it. And yeah, that ring is ringing bells now. Yeah, I, you are. I, I will send you a link after this show. And Tim, I would <laughs> love for you to play test as well. I know. I think what you can learn about me from this is that I lead a, a busy life of panic. Yeah, I think that that's. <laughs> okay. It's not to say I don't have time; it's that I live in a paralyzed state of panic. <laughs> uh, what you could pick one, you could pick one of your kids to play test it. Then you could, then it could be a family activity. That's true. I mean, actually, Quincy is now nine, so like, yeah, yeah. I mean, how does Quincy feel about the Legend of Zelda, the first one? Quincy loves loves game. Uh, he's not permitted to play. He has a total of. Three hours under his belt, lifetime. This one is special then, because it'll be a, a play, game time with Dad, and they won't count against the three hours. No, no, we we well, he's played a lot of Ring Fit. I should I should clarify. Okay, okay. He's play, he he's like on the master loop of, of Ring Fit. It's the the, the body weight ratio, of course, strain. Sure, the yeah, that's a big that's a big deal. We took Winston <laughs> to the climbing gym recently, and yeah. He's pretty good at that. Quincy, on his first day at the climbing gym, just touched touched the. Uh, he just jumped up and touched the ceiling. Cause, yeah, yeah, because he's that light. He's magic. Yeah. No, but no, he just he just was like climbed up. Yeah. You know, like he would look up as if he were walking. Uh, obviously, yeah. he couldn't do the long reaches, but he's just like. Boop, 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 boop. Yeah. There we go. I did the thing. It's like, well, there's not a lot of technique we can really teach you here that isn't super advanced. <laughs> like you've got <laughs> all the basics, and you're not you're not gonna like just jump laterally for three feet. And grab something, um, but he can do the upside down stuff. I mean, he just doesn't weigh anything. Yeah, yep. He's all muscle too. He has like zero body fat. It's pretty impressive. That's what comes from <laughs> being, nine. being nine. Yeah, and not eating when your your parents tell you. That you oh yeah, yeah. Because you keep making fish for dinner. Yeah, exactly. Or I don't know, whatever it is. I have seven more rogue topics that are threatening to come up. I think we need to go back to our agenda or we're going to right, overrun. Right. The next topic is uh, we're going to read this poem called Fine Feather. Tim, you found this poem. It looked like you, you found it in like a coffee table book or something. I have a coffee book, yeah. I, I don't know if anyone knows Charlie Harper. Um, if you don't, you should. Uh, Can you introduce are, me? Yeah, they're, they're an amazing. I, I don't personally know. Okay. Uh, I can introduce you to the idea. So, so they're, they're an artist who makes these kind of like flat color pattern um, works of art uh, and is also a poet. So then there's this element of visual art, uh, evocative visual art, usually about nature, paired with these really, I think, excellent poems that are quite thought-provoking. This one in particular really impressed me and got me thinking about, about I think, some real-world topics that were pretty important. So, yeah, I thought I might share it. Shall I read it? Or did you? Uh, you're welcome to if you'd like to. Sure. 
Uh, so, so the poem is called Fine Feather, and I'd say anyone listening, hopefully uh, Jim can put a link to the image on the internet so that you could, I think it's meant to be taken in at the same time. Yeah, I can, I can put that in the show notes. But it's called Fine Feather. Lo, the English sparrow, weed on the wing, tested as the dandelion, stigmatized like the starling, carried captive to these store, shores, only to be persecuted for prospering and proliferating. Consider his cheery chatter upon the winter wind, his undaunted demeanor in the presence of prejudice, his self-sufficient search for sustenance among his critics' crumbs. Behold, an enterprising and successful English sparrow, about to feather his nest with the pride of the... And the, the sparrow is just, in the image, the sparrow is just like, is mooning us, is showing us, here's my whole ass. <laughs> That's right, just full size. Yeah, yeah carrying a, it's, it's, it's got in its beak a, uh, a peacock feather. Yes. Is the sparrow detested? Do people detest sparrows? Yeah. So, so that's something I didn't realize till I read the poem. Is that sparrows are considered uh, an invasive species that is okay, yeah. crowding and competing with local uh, wildlife? But they were brought over to the New World intentionally. I remember if it was for like shooting them or something. Okay. <laughs> um, and and it turned out that they adapted and they made uh, very well. In, in North America, but like bird watchers hate them. It's it's this strange thing, and I I see allegorical <laughs> connections there uh, between uh, that and you know enslaved people being brought to the United States and then finding prosperity. And there's this huge resentment for that among certain people in the U.S. that hate to see uh, families of former slaves prosper and thrive. And I think it carries also to also to an extent to uh, immigrants and, and people who come to the United States again and do well. There's this idea of the invasive species uh, in, in wildlife and nature, but I think that in, in uh, American culture, there's this really toxic uh, concept of it. That yeah, I think that I think that makes sense. I wasn't aware of the English sparrow being a quote unquote invasive species, so I just googled it and. In the search suggestions, it came up with, is Jack Sparrow English? And I had to close the browser tab. <laughs> is Jack Sparrow an invasive species? <laughs> um, so that's interesting. I, it sort of rhymes a lot with the sort of pigeon sort of perception we have over here. I don't know if you have a similar sort of, if pigeons have a similar sort of like reputation over, over there. But of, of being pests? Of being pests, of being just sort of, you know, rats with wings, as people say over here. Yeah, I mean, I, I, they do, um, but not doves, which are like... The same bird? The same bird, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think in Spanish, the, the, those birds have the, share the same word because they're the same bird, and that's, you know... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but uh, pigeons, well, we have so many pigeons in cities because they... Were domestic, they're a domesticated species, and we used them for many years as, you know, uh, companions and message of food, food as well. Um, yeah. Uh, and then, you know, one day uh, we decided that was not the thing anymore and just let them out onto the streets, and now that's their fault. They've been very successful in human cities. They have. I found the, the, the note here, by the way, from birdsandblooms.com. House sparrows are an invasive bird species, a non-native to North America. They were introduced from Europe to New York in 1852. Birders dislike them because they often kill native birds in order to take over their nesting sites. Also, they're, they don't have vibrant blue plumage or any of the other traits that I'm sure birders Yeah, they don't have the pride of the peacock, except for the one in this illustration. Are we, are we ready for another topic? I hope yeah. so. This one is... <laughs> I've been staring at this topic. 
the whole time. Oh, I just yeah, I just realized what this was. Yeah, uh, Ben, your topic is the terrifying field of hostile nuclear architecture. Yeah, so we were briefly talking about this before the we started recording, and I noted that. I had put it down and then sort of since forgotten what I was going to talk about about it. And then you were like, I know all about this. So maybe we can both explain what this field is. But <laughs> essentially, and I'm going to do a bad job here, but essentially it's this thinking about like, okay, well, we've got all this nuclear material buried under the earth and it will kill you. The ground will kill you in this, you know, these specific areas where we've done this. And so we need to make that area inaccessible or just just warn people to not go there because you know the ground will kill you um and that's fine now but nuclear material stays harmful for you know um hundreds of years um and so how do you communicate thousands of years is the the actual thousands of years yeah um so how do you communicate that message to people who you know won't speak your language won't necessarily understand any of the sort of ways you're used to communicating and it just has spawned this field of like just really if you if you just google hostile nuclear nuclear architecture and some of the pictures you get it's just like the wildest stuff it's it's like it's 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 sort of like images of sort of post apocalypse attempts to like really to to mess with your hindbrain in a way that makes you think like i need to leave here immediately yeah like things that would transcend culture Exactly, right? The the snappy two-minute TikTok video that I was watching about this described it as the science of bad vibes, <laughs> uh, which which is quite fun. Um, because, yeah, it's like lots of things that you would just associate with like, oh, this is just a video game level. This is from Dark Souls. It's like, sp- like you know, spikes in the terrain. It's things like, you know, skulls, like symbols on, on although you have the problem of like skulls that's uh you know maybe that doesn't it, it already doesn't mean what it used to mean skull it just means something is funny now like what do we do for um i, I remember the skeleton playing a trumpet that was hilarious <laughs> right um but you know the skull emoji just means i'm 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 dying laughing so um who who knows what um any sort of given symbol will mean like you know with far enough remove so I just thought it was interesting that you're sort of make doing this sort of guessing game of what what will stick, you know. It's like it's got to be like so you have to make a field of screaming Aztec death whistles that that make that noise when the wind blows through them. Right, right, yeah. Um, here's the other thing: you've got to like not make it so tantalizing that it looks like there's a prize on the other end of uh, the other side of the whatever. Right, you're trying to block people off from right. Right, like it's right. not just some sort of, yeah, because the you know people are going to be adventurous and be like, well, what's on the other side of that? Um, yeah, yeah, the- yeah. I just find it fascinating. It, it's an interesting thing. I do question sometimes, like with the nuclear waste stuff. I do question to some extent, like, like it's an interesting subject, but like in a hundred thousand years, if someone finds the nuclear material in some future civilization that knows nothing of ours, um, or even 10,000. Like, people will die. And I, I suspect they'll notice that it had to do with going in that place. And Not so, immediately, though. That's the problem. Like, they'll fi- I think they'll figure it out. They'll, they'll figure it out. Like, we're trying to save, like, thousands of lives and not, like, not save their civilization, you know? Yeah, but it's, but it's an interesting thing, right? It's like, there's so much compassion in trying to save the hypothetical 
thousand people who discovered this in ten thousand years. It's kind of it's it's kind of amazing. Yeah, you know, I agree. Uh, to think about that, I, I read this book, uh, which if you haven't read it, I would strongly recommend for everybody read, uh, which is called uh, "Tale for the Time Being," and it's about a woman who um, finds a journal, a schoolgirl's journal from Japan, wash up in uh, Vancouver area in a the plastic bag. And it's washed up. She looks at it. It's from uh, the uh, uh, essentially the tsunami that washed everything out uh, and carried everything off into the ocean, and it all kind of washes up on the beach. So she finds it, and she starts reading this uh, journal. And the book takes the form of a chapter from the journal and a chapter from uh, uh, from the perspective of the person who discovered it. And the book's central idea and theme is uh, is speaking across time, messages across time. Um, and in the form of this book, which speaks essentially 10 years into the future, letters from uh, from the girl's um, uh, uncle, who uh, was a kamikaze pilot, conscripted kamikaze pilot in World War II and died. And like letters he wrote home during the war. And then uh, to speaking of the tsunami, the, the markers, the, the, the watermarks, where the high watermark was, right. where you're not supposed to build past the point, and they did. And those markers were untouched during the tsunami. And that that was people, again, speaking across time for hundreds of years saying, don't build past this point. Um, but people didn't listen to it. So it, it's, it's a really, if you're interested in that idea, of, uh, it's a wonderful exploration of that and just a fantastic book all around. Yeah, yeah. With like the fields of archaeology, we're getting glimpses of like tiny lights flashing far distant, at, 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 like in the, in the distant past. People not necessarily even trying to send messages to us, but send messages to anybody. And if you flip it on its head, like in, it's especially the the uh, the idea of hostile nuclear architecture is like we're trying to be those tiny flashing lights that are barely visible in the distant past. We're trying to flash this light as 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 loud and dis- like as, as brightly and distinctly as we can to figure out like like how do we distinguish ourselves from like the pharaoh's tomb that claims to have a curse protecting its treasure. There's a message that goes along with this stuff that starts, uh, this place is not a place of honor. And it, yeah. Uh, that you've probably seen because it's part of, kind of part of the culture now. Yeah. There's a there's an article written about that that thing. Yeah. That's, there's, a, there's an article with the same name about yeah. that. Yeah. And one of my favorite examples of this being uh, appropriated by pop culture was somebody putting the message, this place is not a place of honor, along with the next few lines of the message, like, on a pair of boxer shorts, which is very good. No highly esteemed deed is commemorated here. Nothing <laughs> valued is here. Yes. Are we ready for another topic? Yeah. Tim, your topic is, do you have 10 to the third tabs open in Chrome? Question for you guys. I'll, I'll go one further. I have that many tabs open in Visual Studio. I, just... I, I have actually, my, my greatest shame is Sublime Text. Yeah. I use that for taking notes and I have, I'm going to count them here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, nine. Seven windows open, each of which has somewhere on the order of 50 tabs of yeah. stuff. All in the autosave. None of it's saved to files. Oh, yeah. Like, I'm using uh, Notepad++, which has a similar feature where, like, if you oh. don't hit save, it's okay. You can reboot. We got you anyway. We'll just reopen yeah. the file to where it was. Uh, and so that, that completely obliterates any any need I had to keep it manageable. And like to rem- well, now you don't have to commit to deciding where to save that file because it can just live in a tab forever, and you don't have to, you know, yeah. think about that right now or ever. It's like a, it's like a, a really volatile version of the cloud. <laughs> That's right. 
And yeah. Visual Studio, it shows you all the, the the complete file name of the tab that's open. It'll never the tab will never get smaller than that. So there's just who knows how many tabs I have. If you close one, like it just shifts one over to the left to and and you can keep closing them for minutes and it's like, well, who knows when I'll get to the end. Feeling very called out by this particular topic because the computer I'm on right now is is mostly fine. It's pretty manageable, but my work laptop upstairs is basically a ADHD shame graveyard of browser tabs that <laughs> I, I I it it's 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 not a good enough laptop to be running that many Chrome windows, and yet I do anyway, and um, it's a problem. I, I feel like browser developers either must have or or the very least should take this into account where like people are going to basically use tabs as a form of like short-term bookmarking and Long-term like... Long-term bookmarking. Uh, I keep stuff open Yeah, for, for years, for years. And uh, and there's a data loss. Just because you have like that. 20 YouTube videos doesn't mean you should keep the, all those videos in cache. But I'm gonna. I'm gonna because they're gonna make it that way. The problem that I have and I need to... I just... I have not sort of confronted it within myself, this is a me problem, is that I can keep all these browser tabs, and my computer will remember them, I won't, and so they'll just live forever, and I won't ever revisit them, and I won't ever decide, all I'll do is leave them there because my brain will be like, well, they must be important because I've left them there. Well, there's a mark and and sweep. There's a mark and sweep (laughs) stuff that you do, though, right? Which This this maps to, like, physical objects in our lives, too, but even digital records, when you eventually do say, I want to clean up my tabs. There's one way you just close all your tabs and just say, I have peace. The alternative is that you go through one by one, you look at them. And I find that this is like the, the, the market sweep where you're just like, oh, I haven't, I haven't thought of this and I've lost my context. So I'm going to pop that one out. But then some number of them remain relevant to you. They're still in your, in your mind. They're still in the zeitgeist, maybe more relevant to you now. And you keep those ones around, and then you start cur- you're, you're consolidating the, the stuff that has long term value. Yeah, I hear you on that. My problem is that uh, I think on the first instance of finding a tab that I'm like, oh, this has relevance. Now I'm just doing that task, and I've completely <laughs> swept the <laughs> cleaning the browser tabs task under the rug. We all got ADHD here. Don't worry. friends. <laughs> I don't know about it. It's you, just but. un. I used to have like a sort of moment of sort of mercy back in the days when when you sort of did a hard shutdown, Chrome would just forget all of your tabs. But now it remembers them, and I have no relief. Merciless. No, you're, you're, you're tied to it. The other thing that comes to mind about this for me is that there's a lot of stuff nobody talks about. And it's not like it's necessarily taboo, but like we don't talk about. Like, and no one knows. Browser really tabbing? Ha- no, like, like, uh, like, for example, like, when you take a shower, like, there's all kinds of details of how one bathes oneself that is not discussed. Like, what order does one clean oneself? I don't know. We don't talk about that. And so you don't know how anyone else really does it, you know, especially when you're a kid and, and you have no sort of outer context. You, you do things in your own way. Maybe your parents showed you and then they showed you like 15 years ago and you had to invent a bunch of shit. And I think it's the same kind of thing. Like, people just start using browsers and they start making tabs and and no one talks about that, like, everybody does some weird kind of hoarding of tabs process or, like, has a way where they, they made sure that they turned off the thing where it remembers the tabs as their method for not having this tab issue. But, like, it's completely undiscussed. And I think it's not, I think, I bet I bet that almost everybody who hears this will agree that they also have a tab problem in some program. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that they manage in their own weird way. This is the source of my my tab issue, which is that if I'm 
still thinking about something, I don't want to close the tab. When I stop thinking about it, I forget. So the tab remains open because I didn't I like, there's no like dispose method I can add to this thought process that would then go close the tab after it stopped being relevant. It's, stuff, it's true with stuff in our, our homes too, though, like old books, papers, random little toys that you pick up from here or there, like stuff that isn't necessarily even important to you, but just don't have the energy to go do the process of divesting. Yeah. I want a browser that only gives me like 30 tabs and then says, no, Ben, that's too many tabs. And that's that then forces me into doing that process while Diablo 3. while the total is still small. We need a browser developed by the, the by Lexalawful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you also just go with the Diablo 2 model. It's all inventory management. Oh, yeah. Okay. So then we need to invent the Herodric cube where you can put two websites into the cube and get an unknown third website out. Or you can leave them in the cube. <laughs> <laughs> right bonus storage <laughs> should we do the next topic yeah let's do that my topic is in super mario world some secrets reward you by skipping levels and some reward you by adding new levels make up your mind if the level add guy and the level subtract guy had just talked to each other they could have left the levels as they were and saved everybody a lot of work that's a long topic do you have anything <laughs> to add to that manifesto <laughs> I have a hypothesis for how this happened. The Mario series started out as like in the in the arcade lineage where you started from the beginning of the game every time. And so the warp zones were added f- so advanced players could skip to the interesting content. And so that was the purpose of the like the level skip secrets. But Mario World is more in the more um modern lineage of games uh where you play until you exhaust all the content. And so secrets that add new content makes more sense in that in that context. But because both kinds of secrets exist in the Mario universe, it, ma- it makes sense to continue putting them both in the games. So so I can see this from two points. One, I just want to make a design. I want to disagree slightly with your design assessment. Of mm-hmm. this because aside from intrinsic joy, most, if not all of the secrets offer some substantial benefit to you in like you one of the secret uh, water levels the first thing that you see in that level the one in the forest is a brick that will give you a uh, a cape and so you can immediately pop back out and you can just get a cape on demand after getting that so it has relevance to like yeah progress right and most of them do they'll have some you know way to get extra lives or a shortcut you know even star road which you might argue is mostly about like really challenging difficult content does ultimately let you skip, right? It is also the warp hub. Yeah, the, the only like fully optional levels that are just like content for its own sake that I can think of are the I forgot what you call that the the at the center of Star Road it leads to um, like eight very difficult levels. Those are the challenge the challenge road one where it's like you're just a little pea balloon moving around and you have to just dodge like totally um, you know Mario Maker hell levels. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's true. Those and those are, I would say, truly, those are actually intrinsically fun. That's the point of them. They're 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 actually a reward in and of themselves because they're yeah. so cool and interesting. Every one of them. Would you argue then? And I would have to like actually go over the map and like really like look at the connections to make sure. But do you think all the secrets that add le- that seemingly add levels, like the ones that lead to new levels, eventually lead you to shortcuts? Well, there are other benefits. Like, or other say, benefits, the first, yeah. First like island. The, 
you can go left or you can go right. The one on the left takes you to the first Switch Palace. The second area, the one on the left takes you to the Switch Palace, the shortcut through the water. Yeah, a, a shortcut or like something that improves your ability to Those finish palace. the game. Like, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Most of them do. But that being said, I have seen games that reward you with adding levels and somewhat skipping. And I think especially these new open world games, like if you play Ghost of Tsushima, like there is um, kind of a golden path that you follow. Yeah. It takes you from, from the beginning of the game to the end of the game of the main path. And when you finish those, they spin off these side stories, you know, these tales. And so you'll play the first tale of, you know, one of these characters. Mm-hmm. And then you'll find them somewhere else and continue their story. Yeah. And you'll get abilities out of that. But a lot of it is just like you want to see the character's story. Um, it doesn't apply to Super Mario World, but um, I think skipping levels is about finishing the game. And the adding levels can be about making that easy and like balancing difficulty. But I think also could just be that like there is some intrinsic joy and fun to playing this game in most cases. I think that that's that's worth something. It is an interesting thought of like uh, kind of a thought experiment when you play one of these games that has a bunch of unlockable abilities. Ghost is a good example, but um, there's tons of them. Uh, Elden Ring, whatever it is. Um, yeah. And uh, if you speed run the game, that's fun. But you can't go back and get all the stuff in your first run. You have to do a new game plus run to get anything that you missed. And so ultimately, if you if you if you got to the final boss and you got all the stuff within that run, there's no real value to it in the game. The most fun way to play Dark Souls for me is to go and like beeline for the thing I want to play with at the soonest possible point, and then go back and do everything. Because for me, that's like it's like almost like the new game plus experience. You have the you have the build you want early. But a little bit of that um, kind of uh, run design, like, you know, optimization to be like, how quickly, how early can I get the thing? How early can I get my build online? Yeah. And then how much of the fun of the game can I enjoy through that lens authentically on a first run? Yeah. I have very little to add because I was trying to think of other games that did the uh, Mario World thing of... Uh, skipping levels and also adding levels and i i came up with nuclear throne which i guess does both in sort of the same instance where the thing you do to skip a level instead puts you in a bonus level which i guess you know skips a few a chunk of levels at a time but instead you're doing this bonus level yeah yeah um which is usually like way harder than the next level you would have had to sort of ramp up you know, it's for the people who the roguelike context is again like a completely completely different context for like why you would yeah totally yeah yeah get 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 me to the 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 good bit or the bit that is you know not boring me because I've done it a million times sort of sort of thinking yeah uh, Elden Ring does it Elden Ring does it super well if you uh, when you start the game you have like uh, you know, your sort of very intro area but after that there's the three different bosses you can beat you just have to beat two of them you can go for the sorceress you can go for the Godric dude in the castle, or you can go for Radon out in the big battlefield. And um, the Radon fight is, or at least when it shifts, I don't know if it's still true, I know they patched it, but that fight is absolutely the hardest one in the game. And it is, um, it unlocks this whole underground area that you can go to. He summoned, he was holding back the stars, so this star crashes into Earth and creates this huge chasm that you can go into to like an underground city the size of the entire world map. And it's an awesome secret, but it's not necessary in any way. Uh, you, you just get more game, I guess. Uh, but you can beat the entire game never going underground. At least not that part of the end. Yeah. Now, remind me, Elden Ring, I'm trying to remember how it's structured, but like, I, I think you unlock the end game by getting a certain number of MacGuffins, like the like stars in Mario 64. You unlock the second act by getting two of the three big boss MacGuffins. 
Right. And that gets you, or you can do it a couple ways, but that's, that's the standard way. And then you can, you can get to this sort of second area of the Lindell city in a few ways. And when you finish Lindell, then you can go to the third act, which is the like frozen Northlands. Um, yeah. and then eventually the land of the dragons. But it's like, um, it's, it, it's the, the opening act, act one is about as wide open as it can get. And then Act two is very linear. You're kind of just continuing with the act one stuff you could do, plus a couple extra areas. Um, and then act three opens up again into this whole northern area with like three different areas. Okay, yeah. So it's pretty cool. I, I, I mean, honestly, it matches pretty similar to the original Dark Souls, where the opening of the game, I mean, there's some serious level limitations, but there's like a bunch of different areas and bosses you can fight, and eventually you will um, go to an Orlando. And they're super linear. It's a single level you go to. You pass through it as everyone does. Finish the boss. They take you back. And then there's four new areas that you can go to that you couldn't go before. You had the Lord Vessel. Yeah. It's broad and then it narrows and then it broadens. It's a great great design. Yeah, I was really impressed by the design of Elden Ring. I I, I think it's a really solid follow up to Breath of the Wild. I I would I'm actually guessing it's going to be a better better follow up to Breath of the Wild than the actual <laughs> Breath of the Wild sequel will be. We will find out in not too much time. Yeah, probably by the time this episode is out, we'll know. I, I really like the um, do a certain portion of the challenges available to proceed structure because it allows people to do the ones that are easiest for them, like no matter what the, what those happen to be based on their skill set. Like I'm real, I'm a big fan of like the Mario 64 way of of, of structuring a, a video game. Yeah, I think that that's actually. I mean, Mario 64 structure is. That game is incredible because Tomb Raider came out at the same time. Oh yeah, and I'm not going to try to knock. I'm not going to knock Tomb Raider. Uh, I think Tomb Raider was actually an incredible effort and better than I would have ever done at that time. Uh, not just as a child. I think if I was a professional at that time, I wouldn't have done as well as they did. But what's shocking to me is we contrast it with Mario 64, and you see the choices that were made in this frontier space where no one had really made that third person adventure platform yeah. before, and they both did it. And like. Mario 64's answers to, like, everything still hold up. Like, the, the way they did the camera, the controls. Well, in, in part because, like, it defined what the 3D, the third-person 3D game was for going forward, and everybody followed those choices. But so did Tomb Raider. People threw all the Tomb Raider choices away. That's the thing. Like, <laughs> that's, that's what I'm saying. Two people entered in with that. And Negatively, like, you mean. It's okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, like, Tomb Raider... Was at the same time, same degree of, of, of influence and tension on it, if not more, arguably, with certain uh, demographics. And then the macro controls, like the swan dive and all the, the, the super complex control scheme and, and the kinds of, of gameplay they did and the way they use the spaces. Just incredible. And, and you look at Mario 64 and Mario 64, like also the way they design their levels, the way that you revisit them again and again with different missions superimposed on them. Uh, still holds up, like the GTA games, uh, any kind of these like quest-based games that just take a space and superimpose a mission on it. Breath of the Wild, honestly. Yeah. Uh, and it's uh, it's incredible how much they got right on the very first try. Uh, and that's all the time we have for Topic Lords. Uh, ben, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? I have a link tree. Uh, um, I'm at zero fifty one on Linktree, which has links to various places. That's 051 spelled out as if it's all in words and not numerals. So find that if you're interested or don't. Uh, and Tim, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? I like to think of it like a scavenger hunt. <laughs> have at it. Best of luck. Yeah. I, I can be found. Yeah. Uh, my GitHub is a good spot. West quote on GitHub. Cool. 
thanks so much for being on. My pleasure. Thanks, thanks for having me. This was fun. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. This episode was edited by Esper Quinn, who can also edit your episode if you contact them on Twitter. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it, or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com, and you can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode!